It is our privilege once again to consider this personal letter from heaven, where God gave information, exhortation and warning to his son to pass on to the ecclesial world in all ages. And we cannot overstate the importance of the apocalypse to those of us who claim to be the servants of the living God. Jesus, having made his way to heaven, received all power and authority from his Father, all knowledge of the times to come, the authority to be the king of the millennium, was given one last opportunity to write a personal appeal, to pass on information, to pass on warnings, and to pass on exhortation and encouragement. We don't just get the future history of the world outlined to the servants of God, but we have the opportunity then, through those words, to see the world as God sees it, and to be ready for his return, and not to be caught unprepared. This is the only book actually dictated by Jesus. The Gospels, of course, under the influence of the Spirit, were recorded by those apostles who wrote them. But this is a book dictated directly by Christ from immortality, from heaven, having received all power and knowledge from his Father. It's therefore critical that we understand this book. The opening verse of Revelation is one that is known to us so well. And it consists of three particular points. Apocalypse, of course, the revelation, the apocalypse, the unfolding, the, un the revealing, the unveiling. Things that were not known are now revealed to us and they come from God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his angel. And we have in that verse, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, three very important keys to Revelation. And we're going to see that God delights in stimulating the intellect of his creatures. We have a book here that is quite different to all the other books of the Bible, because it's full of symbology, full of exhortation written in code. And we noted that it was given to the servants of God. It's not written for the world in general. And when you go out there and look at the commentaries that have been made upon the book of Revelation by the churches and other people, you see the utter confusion that they get into because they don't have the truth to base their interpretations on. It's not written for the world. It's written for the servants of God uniquely. It's written in code or signs. He signified it or sent it in signs. And most of those signs are Bible-based. We can go back and find many of them in the Bible. Therefore, only his true servants can fully understand the code that is used. But you'll never understand Revelation if you don't have a correct understanding of the doctrines of the truth. If you don't have a correct grip of Bible prophecy from the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and other places and Zechariah, all of those things give us the keys to understanding Revelation. And it mostly contains a pattern of the future history of the world from AD 96 when it was delivered right through to the end of the millennium of the thousand years. So we have vital keys to the apocalypse. And I know for many of the older ones here, this is just perhaps very, very simple and very basic. But we do have amongst us new members and we have young people that need to get their heads around the book of Revelation and why it's so important to us. Now there are three sections in Revelation which are defined for us in chapter 1 and verse 19. And John is told to write, write down the things which you have seen, 
the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. And that's the way the book of Revelation can be divided. That's the three things John was told to record. So the first thing is what you have seen. And of course, by the time you get to verse 19, he's seen the vision of the one like the Son of Man. That symbolic picture of the Christ body in its fullness, where the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed, but his body, his ecclesia is portrayed with him. And their future work is outlined in that, in that vision of the man like the Son of Man in the early part of chapter 1. So write down what you've seen, that encouraging, inspirational vision of what God has in store for you to be part of the body of Christ. And then in chapter 2 and 3, you have the things which are. John, this is the state of the seven ecclesias. And we know that those seven ecclesias were extant at the time that John wrote. But they also represent the ecclesias in every age. Because the problems they had, the things that they had, the good things and the bad things they had can be found in every generation of the ecclesial world. So the things that are. And so we have chapters 2 and 3. And then from chapter 4 onwards to the end of the book, we have the future history of the world from AD 96 onwards. So that's what we have unfolded for us as we get to the end of the book tonight. Now, I want to just make this point about the history book of the future. There are many history books in the world, but this one is utterly unique because it's the only book that actually predicts the future with total and utmost accuracy. The things which must shortly come to pass in Revelation 1 verse 1, and in chapter 4 verse 1, things which must be hereafter. I'm staggered that there have been interpretations inside the Brotherhood saying it's all about AD 70, which was of course after the time of John. When it clearly says these are things after the time of John in AD 96. Only divine foreknowledge could write a history book of the future. And God has done that in the book of the Apocalypse. And he's done it by using signs or code. He signified it or he wrote it in symbol. And so we have in this book all these dramatic symbols of women riding beasts as we're going to see tonight. We have four-headed or seven-headed beasts coming out of the sea. We have all kinds of imagery in the book of Revelation. We have an old serpent being put in chains and cast in, into, a, into a grave. So we have all these things in, in, in the apocalypse which are symbolic. And what it's doing is it's making us go back and to look through the scriptures to understand these things. And that's why we are twice encouraged in the apocalypse to have wisdom. You know, twice Jesus says, here is the mind that hath wisdom, that has an inquiring mind, that has a seeking mind to understand and to unlock these things. That him that understandeth count the number of the beast. And we know that one, the 666, which clearly identifies the Pope. And the world thinks it's bank card or something like that. When the bank card came out, it had the symbol on it. It looked like a 666. And we said, oh, everyone said this is the fulfillment of Revelation. Well, we know it's the number of a man. Interesting, Radio Vatican is 666 kilohertz. So interesting, isn't it, that we have this, this number identified for us way back in the days of John that can actually be pointed today and seen there on the Pope's tiara. The Latin area is actually the numeric number of 666. So, but we're encouraged to actually search these things out. And God knows that his servants should be those who are interested to actually work out the symbology that he gives us. The other thing about the apocalypse, just in general background, is that we have right through the apocalypse all these visions given to encourage the saints in whatever time they lived in. 
And many of them lived in times of horrible and bitter persecution that they suffered for their faith. So at the end of their historical sections, God puts in appropriate rewards that they can look forward to. So that whatever they were suffering, the kingdom was just around the corner and their particular concerns were addressed. For example, those who were under the altar being persecuted in the days of the Roman emperors, who were being thrown to the lions and burnt at the stake and tortured to death for their faith. God says to them that he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And you can imagine the tears they suffered as they waited to be eaten by the lions. God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. So Revelation 7 is particularly appropriate to those who were suffering under the Roman emperors. So it doesn't matter where you are in history, the reward that is most appropriate to you is described. And of course, we all share those rewards. But some of them are particularly located around the sufferings they went through. And in all of those chapters listed there, we have visions to encourage and inspire the saints to continue in the faith. So that's a bit of a, a thumbnail sketch of the background of the apocalypse overall. What is vital that we get from the apocalypse is the thinking of God. You know, this is the divine viewpoint. I want you to just come to Revelation 17 and verse 14. And just notice two terms that are used in Revelation 17 and chapter 19 about those that actually go out with Christ to destroy the church and to conquer the world. Revelation 17 verse 14. These shall make war with the land, that is the nations that join with the papacy. The Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. So Christ is the leader in this battle. But look what it says here. They that are with him. And you see, that's what we want to be. We want to be those who are with him. The same thing in chapter 19 and verse 14. The nations make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So in that, that thing, we actually have the opportunity to be part of the army of Christ that conquers the nations and make sure that this Roman Catholic system is totally obliterated from the face of the earth. And that is going to be the privilege we have, but we have to identify with that viewpoint. We cannot be conscripts in that army. We cannot be there unwillingly. We cannot be there not wanting to be part of it. We've got to be with him, brethren and sisters, in that endeavour. And the second point I want to make is this. That we're living in what was called the postmodern age. And the great principle of the postmodern age is that there is no one truth. The world will tell you there are many valid truths. And you cannot criticise somebody else's concept of their truth. Whatever they believe to be right is right. And you cannot criticise or judge somebody else's beliefs. Well, they haven't read the book of Revelation. Because God and Christ have dramatic things to say about the false church that's, that operates in their name. He calls it the abominable mother of harlots. And that doesn't fit with a tolerant postmodern view. And we have to be prepared to say that we do stand up against that false church as God has us. If we're with him, we'll share the divine viewpoint on this church. So the big theme of Revelation, yes, we have the story of the kingdom goes right through Revelation about God conquering the nations, God controlling the nations, God restoring the nations, all of those things are outlined in the apocalypse. But the vast majority of the revelation is about God's battle with this false church. It's about this Catholic religion that has paraded itself for so long in the name of Christ. 
and the divine perspective. As God looks down upon this world, he doesn't just see many nations in turmoil. He doesn't just see nations exercising their own political agendas. What God sees is a world that has been led astray by a false church that he absolutely loathes. And God's kingdom was in the past in Jerusalem and it will be again in Jerusalem. So right through Revelation, and again there's a list of chapters, chapter 6, 8, 9, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 to 19, are all about God's battle with the church. And about corrupt religion that God hates. And so we have to be on God's wavelength when we come to these things. And to see that's the theme. That God sees this as a battle between his truth and false religion. So the choice is there. And isn't it interesting, we look at the ge geography of the situation, that the ecclesias to whom this was written were fir firmly camped right in the middle between Zion and Rome. And they had to make a choice. I set before you Rome or Zion. Choose Zion. They had to set their hearts on the hope of Israel and to absolutely reject that false religion that would come out of Rome. And that's how God sees the world. We, of course, tend to be very much involved in the politics of the world. But the divine viewpoint that's given in Revelation is very much about the religion of the world. Because God sees that as the great thing that has caused so many people to lose their opportunity for life. That wine of the doctrine of Babylon is something that God loathes. So God is very clear what he thinks about this battle between Rome and Jerusalem. I've just made a very short list here of the names that God uses about the Roman Catholic system. Babylon the Great, the mystery of iniquity. The arrogant horn with a mouth speaking great things. The beast out of the bottomless pit. A city spiritually called Sodom in Egypt. You know, we wondered, didn't we once, why they would call the Roman Catholic Church Sodom and Egypt. Egypt, of course, being darkness, superstition, idolatry. But I think we understand now why it was also called Sodom. The Pope claims to be the God of the earth. This claim that he actually represents God on the earth. The false prophet, the man of sin, the lawless one. A mouth speaking great blasphemies. Parading as a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. Full of the names of blasphemy, the abominations of the earth, a worthless shepherd, says Zechariah. The mother of harlots, a great prostitute. Pretty severe terms. That's the way God describes this particular church that we're dealing with tonight. So right through the Bible, we have this theme that there is a rise and a fall of the Holy Roman Church. God predicted their fate in so many books of the Bible. And it's totally consistent in Daniel 7, the arrogant, blasphemous, proud and persecuting horn that rose up would be destroyed with the coming of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 2, the apostate man of sin, parading as God on the earth, would be burnt up with fire. In Revelation 13, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, two stages of the development of the papacy. The dark ages, with their total domination, again destroyed by the coming of Christ. Revelation 14, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 19, the fierceness of the wrath of God falls upon Babylon the great. And again, constant theme through the Bible. Here are just some of the references that we're referring to. 
Revelation 13 verse 5. It was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him. 1260 years, 42 months of persecution to blaspheme the name of God and those that dwell in heaven. And you see, this is what God hates so much is the arrogance and the pronouncements of this false church. You know, Daniel talked about the rise of the little horn. This power with a mouth speaking great things. You speak great words against the Most High. But it'll also be a persecuting church. He will wear out the saints of the Most High. And think to change times and laws. Introducing all the pagan feasts into, under Christian titles. And the servants of God will be into his hands for 1260 years. And so they were in the Dark Ages. So we have to correctly perceive the Catholic Church. As Bible students, we have to align ourselves with the thinking of God. What has God revealed to us about the way he sees this church? God hates wrong teaching, religious fraud, corruption, pride. All of those things are found in that church. He hates a system that has completely corrupted his one true faith. You know, Catholicism arose from the decline of Christianity that was set up originally by Christ. And it was corrupted over the years until we come to Constantine when they became the state church with all its abominations included. I want to be clear about one thing. We are not here hating individual Catholics. Most Catholics are completely deluded or deceived by the glamour and the glory that the church puts in front of them. By the claims of authority going back right back to the apostles. But we should hate the system that generates all of these things that God loathes. We hate the evil doctrines. You know, the doctrines of making Mary the mother of God. The doctrines of hell and purgatory and limbo. Some of which they've actually given up on. The doctrines of the immortal devil. The doctrines of patron saints. We should hate the persecutions of our brethren. The frauds they've committed, the lotteries they run for souls in South America. The abominations that they have in their churches. The political, political control they exercise. You should talk to some brethren and sisters that were brought up in Malta about the power of the church over people's lives. And the power of the church over the Maltese government. Absolute control. They tell their congregations who to vote for. See, when they have the opportunity and when they have the power, they are unrestrained in the way they use it. And we have to share God's view of this terrible system that parades in the name of his son. And I know it's not fashionable for Christians to speak like this about the church, but they used to. The Protestants used to protest, but they don't protest anymore. They've gone back under the wing of the mother church. We have to continue that protest, brethren and sisters. Because no, no matter where you look in the Bible... It was predicted that this would come. There shall be a falling away, and the word in the Greek is apostasia. An apostasy shall come, says Paul, and the man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes everything, calls himself God, sitting in the temple of God, showing that he is God. Has that come to pass? Well, there he is, sitting in the temple of God, on the throne of Peter. And the church calls that particular St. Peter's Cathedral the temple of the Lord. And he shows himself to be God. Pope Nicholas said, 
The Pope, I'm able to do almost all that God can do. What can you make me but God? You see, this is an exact prophecy of Paul come to pass in the words of that Pope. They exalt themselves above every object. Tetzel, of course, he was the Jesuit who went out to, to try and, and get away from the meaning of Revelation. The Lord our God no longer reigns. He's resigned all power to the Pope. It's a pretty arrogant claim, isn't it? Pope Pius X. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself hidden under the veil of the flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. You see, this is the church that has abrogated the, the name, the responsibility and the control of God to themselves. No wonder God finds them most unacceptable to himself. And there are plenty of other predictions of apostasy in the Bible. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart, and there's your word again, apostasia, an apostasy from the faith. This came out of the followers of Christ, as, as we see the influence of the Nicolaitans, we see those who John talked about that went out from us, we see the Judaizers who ended up in this same system. All of those things melted together to make the Roman Catholic Church, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And of course, the church calendar is full of the saints' days. And people pray to saints. I always remember being in the Philippines, riding in a jeepney, which is a, a pretty incredibly scary experience. And on the front of the jeepney was painted right across the front of the window, you know, St. Nicholas, help us. <laughs> and you could see why they needed that. But look at the identification in Timothy, speaking lies and hypocrisy. And the church has always been full of lies. Conscience seared with a hot iron. You know, the way they've protected their pedophile priests is abominable. Forbidding to marry, of course, their priests can't marry. Commanding to abstain from meats, they have that Friday thing. Forbidding marriage and require abstinence from foods. The identification is absolute, isn't it? I remember once uh, Brother Jeff Johnson and I had a, an occasion to have a, a debate with a Catholic priest in his church down Finden Way. And we were going okay, just going through some of the things that we bring up until we got to this verse. And within a minute of quoting that verse, we found ourselves standing out in the cold because he threw us out. He said, you can't apply that to us. I said, well, who else can we apply it to? Out, 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 <laughs> and we were gone. But they can see themselves, that's themselves that it's talking about. So that's the apostasy that God predicted. And of course, we could go on to talk about the evil practices of indulgences. When they wanted to repair the Vatican, they would go out to Europe with all these bits of paper signed by the Pope, and they would sell them for high prices to the rich people of Europe. And it would actually be a guarantee that you would serve less time burning in limbo or hell or purgatory before you went to bliss. So you were buying less time in the flames because the Pope signed it, but you had to pay for it. And this is something the church has done in the name of God, selling of indulgences. Get some idea why God hates this system. Okay, let's look at the chapter of Revelation. I want to just talk about our overall study because between here and the end of the year, God willing, we have five studies on chapter 17 to 22. These last five chapters of the apocalypse actually take us through a tremendous amount of history which is yet to come. I mean, we realise in Revelation 16, verse 14, is exactly where we stand. 
The nations are out there with the spirit of madness raging amongst the nations at the moment, bringing them to the Battle of Armageddon. And that's what we're waiting for to happen next. But from, from verse 16 onwards, we have the Armageddon phase, the battle against Russia and its confederates in the Middle East. And then we read in verse 17 that after Armageddon, so Armageddon is part of the sixth vial. After Armageddon, there is the seventh vial. So really, the chapter division should be between verse 16 and 17. We should be starting there because it says a great voice from the temple of heaven saying it is done. God's long wait to start the process of eradicating this church. It's done. It's now happened. The vial has been poured out upon the earth. Voices, thunders, lightnings, great earthquake. Never been an earthquake like it. And where does it fall on verse 19? On the great city divided into three parts. The city of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God. So that's where we're standing. Now, it's one of my current themes, but I think it's a very wise thing. We need to challenge more the chapter divisions in our Bible. Apart from the Psalms, the chapter divisions we have were put in by the translators. It was not an inspired thing to have the chapters where they are. It was put in normally for convenience. And some of them are quite good. But don't be frightened to challenge them because really this begins in verse 17 of chapter 16. This is the story beginning. The judgment on Babylon the Great. After Armageddon, the seventh bar we're now dealing with. That's why in verse 1, one of the seven angels, which is the angel of the seventh vial, he comes to John to explain why he's poured out that vial upon the earth. So what you have in chapter 17 is the final manifestation of the apostasy. We've seen the development of the man of sin in Thessalonians. You go to chapter 13, you have the, the early Roman church, then you have the development of the papacy through the Middle Ages. Then we have a time when the church goes into decline at the early part of chapter 16 as Napoleon goes in and subdues the church. What we have in Revelation 17 is what the church will look like when the seventh vial hits it. This is what the church will be like when Christ destroys it. So the angel says, I'm going to show you what this church is going to be like at the time of the end. So the final manifestation of the apostasy is in chapter 17. Chapter 18 talks about the impact on the world when Rome is totally obliterated. In chapter 19, verse 1 to 10, we have the picture of the true righteous bride. Contrast, a real bride, dressed in white, the bride of the lamb, rejoicing over the destruction of that system. So that's chapter 19, verse 1 to 10. And that's the end of that section. Then from chapter 19, verse 11 to chapter 21, verse 8, we have a sweep through the next thousand years of history. The conquest of the nations at the end of chapter 19. The setting up of the kingdom in chapter 20. The thousand years of the kingdom in chapter 20. The events at the end of the thousand years in chapter 20. The second resurrection, the second judgment. Then we have chapter 21, verse 1 to 8, which talks about what happens after the second resurrection, when there'll be no more nations, and when everybody will be immortal that's left on from the face of the earth. So we have that, that should be one section on its own. Unfortunately, by putting it into chapters, we lose that flow. So it's one sweep of the next thousand years. Chapter 21, verse 9 to 22, verse 5. We have a tremendous preacher of the bride, the lamb's wife, the glorified ecclesia, represented to us as the perfected temple of God, New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And we have that final picture 
of what God intends for those who are his servants and who remain faithful to the end. Chapter 22, verse 6 to 21, we have the final warnings and encouragement from Christ. So that's another chapter division I could recommend to you. Just be prepared to challenge what you have in your Bible. Okay, well, let's follow through chapter 17 very quickly. And it's not as hard as it looks, I can assure you. So what we have is Revelation 17 is part of the seventh vial. The seventh vial begins in 16, verse 17. And this is the seventh vial. So we've seen the seals, the trumpets, the vials. As Brother Steve did for us last year. And, and we've now got the, the, the seventh vial being poured upon the earth. And what we have in the seventh vial is an explanation of verse 19 of chapter 16. Look at chapter 16, verse 19. The city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give her the fierceness of his wrath. So that's what is now being explained to us. Why is God so fiercely against this system? What's it going to look like when God does this judgment upon it? So the angel now explains to John why this must happen. So we're coming now to this great harlot that we see in chapter 17. And it's a dramatic picture, isn't it? And it's full of symbolism. And we'll go through some of those symbols and the notes we gave out are just to help you when you go home, if you want to put the references in your Bible, this is how we can unpick the symbolism. The other great thing about Revelation 17, it's one of the rare chapters in Revelation where we're given explanations of what the symbols mean. And we'll see that as we go through. But it's full of symbolism. It's, it's actually God portraying his view of the church in symbol. Now, when you come to this woman who's now a drunken harlot, it's a progression from what we saw in chapter 12 of Revelation. In chapter 12, we had the beginnings of the Christianity as a state religion in the days of Constantine. And it was actually portrayed as a woman who should have been a chaste virgin to Christ. You know, Paul said to the Corinthians, I would espouse you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's what God wanted for the ecclesia. But as, as the heretics came in, as they preached their wrong doctrine, as they corrupted the church from within. So we have this situation arising where by the time of Constantine, it was a woman who was now expecting the man-child, Constantine. So here was the start of this church-state system by a woman who had corrupted herself. By the time you get to the last picture of this church, she's a drunken harlot. And that's the imagery that God uses about this system called to be chaste virgins but corrupted between the second and fourth century when all those strange doctrines and paganism was brought into the church so in revelation 17 verse 1 one of the seven angels who had the seven vials came and talked with him so it's the angel with the seventh vial he's now explaining why he's poured this upon the roman church and he wants john to share it and through john he wants us to share it he wants us to understand these things and the angels do that. They come to us and they say, I want you to understand. Think about this. I'll show you, he says, the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now, in verse 15, he tells you what the waters are. What, what do the waters represent? He said unto me, the waters that you saw where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So I'm defining for you. The wicked are like the troubled sea, the nations, the sea and the waves roaring, said Jesus. These are the nations that God looks down upon as the waters upon the earth. 
and the, and the horse sits upon many waters. She's over many nations. And then he says in verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, the nations of the earth, the Roman Catholic Church still claims some 600 million adherents in about 130 countries around the world. The word Catholic means universal. So this is a worldwide church, many waters. And the kings of the earth have been bullied, have been influenced, have cooperated, and have worked with the church for many centuries to achieve their mutual ends. A recent example of that, what happened in the Second World War when the Nazis came to power in Germany. Cardinal Pacelli, who became Pope Pius XII, went to Berlin and signed a concordant with Nazi Germany that they would not oppose the Nazis if the Nazis didn't ruin their churches. So they had this agreement, we'll look after each other guys. After the war, the leading Nazis who wanted to get out of Germany and escape to South America had that facilitated by what was called the Rat Line. The church organised passports, transport to get them through Italy into Spain and then off to South America and the Nazis lived out their lives in comfort in South America because the church helped them do that. See that's the cooperation, they have worked, they've committed fornication with the kings of the earth. Pope Pius the 11th this was meeting Adolf Hitler, he was succeeded by Pacelli later on but He's meeting Hitler. That's the church cooperating. The kings of the earth committed fornication with the church. You know, did he go and meet with the head of Islam? Did he go and meet with the head of the Mormons? They want the Pope on their side. And so he says, the kings of the earth have committed fornication. You know, I'm staggered what happens when a new Pope is crowned. The world leaders come, all of them, to the feet of the Pope. You get more world leaders at the coronation of the Pope than you do of the, of the crown of England. Because everybody wants to be on the side of the Pope. And, and world leaders crave audience with the Pope. They want to be there. Even Putin goes to see the Pope. So in verse 3 and 4, we look at the woman now. We concentrate upon the woman first. We'll come back to her in verse 5. But we look at the woman first. Here are the symbols God puts upon the Roman Catholic Church. Number one, he says, you'll find her in the wilderness. Well, the wilderness is Europe, because in wilderness there is not much of the word of God in its truth. There are not many those who are the servants of the living God. We've got one ecclesia, or two ecclesias maybe, in Germany. One very small ecclesia in France. Almost none in Italy. Isolated members around the rest of Europe. It's a wilderness of the servants of God and of the truth of God. So he says, come into the wilderness. A barren spiritual wilderness. You'll see a woman in scarlet, sin's colour. Fascinating, isn't it? The colour of the cardinals, and they all come in their regalia, is red. The names of blasphemy, the papal titles, the offices of the church, all the, the degrees and orders they have. Seven heads, seven mountains, and seven forms of government. We'll look at that in a moment. Ten horns. 
You know, there's the ten toes of Daniel's image. There's the ten horns of the, of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. It's the area of the old Roman Empire in Europe that we're talking about, the ten-toed kingdom. Purple and scarlet, claiming to be royalty and massive wealth. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, that's how God sees the church. And she has in her hand this cup, this golden cup of the wine of her fornication, her false doctrine and her politics, her finances. You know, the doctrine of the Trinity explained in these terms here, the worship of Mary. And the Vatican finances are legendary. They recently were forced to admit in the courts of Rome, as one of the cardinals went to court, that they have in Europe six and a half thousand investment properties. On top of all the churches, the thousands of cathedrals, churches, schools, banks, monasteries, nunneries, schools, hospitals and lands, they have six and a half thousand investment buildings in Europe alone, just in Europe. And now we come to verse 3. Looking at the beast. We saw the woman sitting upon it. He's got a beast with seven heads. And we have it explained to us again how to interpret this. The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sits. Now we're given two ways to identify the, the beast. It's got seven heads and ten horns. The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sits. That's the first one. It's a geographic one first. The ten horns, they receive no kingdom yet. They're going to actually join up with the, with the woman and the, become the beast and she will ride them into the battle against Christ. So Revelation 17 gives you the explanations. So here they go. Sitting upon seven hills. You've probably heard of the seven hills of Rome. This was a medal that was struck by one of the popes, um, found in the British Museum, which portrays Rome sitting on the seven hills. Just to make it clearer for you, this is, the seven, this is what's on that medal. You see the seven hills that Rome is sitting on. Rome is sitting on seven hills. If you want any further proof, take a go up to, to, the, to the town of Clare. Just before Clare, you will come to a place called Seven Hill. Go in there and have a look at what you see you will see an enormous Jesuit cathedral, a Jesuit monastery, and a Jesuit winery at a place called Seven Hill in our state. See, that's the proof, isn't it? She sits upon seven mountains. There's an identification. But there's more. I borrowed a couple of these from Steve Hornart, so that's why they keep coming in and out. I'm not as fancy as Steve. So there's another form, another definition given there. It says in verse 5, sorry, in verse 10, there are seven kings, five have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. When he cometh, he must continue a short space. So what we have now is a second point of identification. Seven forms of government. So this is a political identification. And there are five have fallen. There had been five previous forms of Roman government before the time of John. One is, which is the imperial, the emperor system under John, which was the sixth head. The other is not yet come. So that was the Goths, and they were to run 
for a short space. It says there, at the end of verse 10, it shall continue <coughs> a short space. So the Goths only got 60 years. So there were the seven forms of government. But then was another one to come back, the eight in verse 11. He's of the seven. So he's actually number six recreated. The, the empire system or the, the emperor system will come back at the time of the end. When the Pope actually has armies, where the Pope actually has forces he can control. So this is the final face, the woman riding the, the European beast. So what we have here is the imperial system of emperors, which John lived under, that one is where he was at that time. It had been wounded when the Roman Empire collapsed. It'll be reinstated in the time of the end and becomes the sixth head revived as number eight. So when Rome takes control of the armies of Europe to take on Christ at Jerusalem, the woman will be riding the beast completely. And they'll support Russia to start a holy war. And when Russia has been destroyed in the Battle of Armageddon, the Catholics will then go back and take on Christ around Jerusalem for the sacred sites. A pretty dramatic thing, isn't it? Now in verse 5, we have a bit more description on the woman herself. We're told about this woman that she was the, on her head in verse 5, was the names of blasphemy. And they're all pretty obvious, aren't they? Mystery, the mystery of iniquity. Everything with the church is a mystery. The, the Trinity is a mystery. And all these things they have which are mysterious and can't be explained. Mary worship, patron saints, indulgences, transubstantiation, all of these mysteries the church has. Babylon the Great, idolatry, pride, arrogance, the mother of harlots. They've always claimed to be the mother church. And she wants to bring back the, the daughters of Protestantism under her wings. The abominations of the earth, the artworks, the idols, the stations of the cross, the confessional, the corrupt and immoral clergy, pagan festivals, monasteries, nunneries, flagellations, all of these things, none of them to do with the Bible. And yet they parade in the name of religion. But in verse 6, John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And I wondered with great admiration. Now it should be amazement, astonishment. John was appalled by what he saw about this woman. I'm just going to put up very quickly for you some of the, the horrible scenes of persecution that the church went through. Under the imperial system, our brethren were fed to the lions and burnt as lampposts. Under the papal system of the Dark Ages, they were treated abominably by the church. You want to read the story of John Hus, Czechoslovakian, opposed the Pope on doctrine. The Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire said, come to Constance and have a debate with the Pope and I will guarantee your safety. Well, he never got home, did he? He was brutally tortured to death by the Catholics. And that's the church you're dealing with. They, they actually gave him a guarantee and then totally betrayed it. It's estimated that the Catholics, in the time they had control with the Inquisition, got rid of about 68 million people. That's about three times what Hitler got rid of in the Second World War. Cruelty in the name of Christ. That's a very interesting little shot. You know, here he is worshipping the, the, the little statue of Christ. Over here's a man on the rack. Forcing recantations of faith. In the Second World War, the church teamed up with the Ustashi, the resistance in, in Serbia, and forcibly converted all the people who weren't, who weren't Catholics at the point of a gun. 
The persecution of our brethren took place. The Waldenses were chased and hunted down with dogs into the mountains of Austria and places like that. And many of those were people who believed the same faith that we believed. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of all his saints. They wouldn't compromise their beliefs to save their lives. They were killed. Their feet were burned in fires. They were tortured in prisons. Our brethren went through those things, brethren and sisters, and never compromised. They wore out the saints of the Most High, says Daniel, with terrible tortures and sufferings that our brethren and sisters and others went through. This is a system that God hates for a good reason. And so in verse 8, the angel explains to John about this beast that thou saw and is not and shall resign down to the bottomless pit. And what simply that means was that there would be a time in the future, says the angel, when the beast would go into obscurity. And there was a time when that happened. When the Pope lost his power in 1868 after the French Revolution and the wars that followed, the papacy became into obscurity for 60 years. Between 1862 and about 1922, the Pope did never left Rome, was hardly heard from. So there was a time when the church was under control, it was out of sight. It was in the bottomless pit, but it would come out of that and people would, would join with it. So the final manifestation is going to be the old Roman Empire of the, of the emperors reconstructed in the latter days. And when it goes down at the end of verse 8, when Rome is destroyed by God in an instant, people will wonder and be amazed at how quickly it disappeared. And a system of enormous power and influence will disappear in a moment. And so he says they will wonder how quickly this system was destroyed. So we have in verse 12 to verse 17 the final battle with Christ and the saints. And this is not complicated. In verse 12, the ten horns of Europe, ten kings, ten powers at the time of the end who will join with the papacy. They'll have power one hour with the beast. I'll come back to the one hour later on. They have one mind in verse 13 to give their power under the beast. Unity of purpose. Destroy Israel, take back the holy sites in Jerusalem for the power of the church. In verse 14, they will make war with the Lamb. When Christ proclaims his kingdom from Jerusalem after Armageddon, their antichrist doctrine that they have preached, that they expect to see a man set up in Jerusalem as a king, their antichrist doctrine that they have preached to their people will create another crusade to go and fight the, the kingdom of Christ in Jerusalem. They'll make war with the Lamb. And he'll overcome them. In verse 15, we have the explanation of the waters. In verse 16, the ten horns which he saw upon the beast, they shall hate the horse. So there's going to be a stage where the, the nations will not like the church. So between about 1793 up to about 1930, the church disappeared from sight in the political world. But they'll come back. So having been hated at one stage, when they ate her flesh, as we read in, the, in Revelation 16, burnt it with fire at the time of the end God's put in their hearts to go back to the church as their leader and so in verse 17 God put in their hearts to fulfill his will to agree to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled and it was the treaty of Rome in 1957 that saw the foundation of the European Commission so you see 
Once they hated the beast, once they persecuted the church, once they locked the Pope up, but now they will come back at the time of the end under his wing and he will lead them in a crusade against the kingdom of Christ in Jerusalem. So we can see these signs coming to pass, can't we? And again in verse 18, we have one more identification given. It's a city I'm talking about, the angel says. I'm talking about a city that in your day, John, rules over the kings of the earth. No doubt it was Rome. So you see, there's clearly identified God's situation with Rome. Now I want to make a quick comment about the one hour in verse 12. You can take this two ways. Some take the one hour to be a reference to a time period. I think Brother Steve Hornard explained to some, some of you in, in the session here about the double conversion. You can't just take one hour and make it into 30 years without a double conversion. And that's not inappropriate. It happens in Revelation and other places. But it fits into the Jubilee period. So people who, who would look at this particular model of the 40 years from the resurrection to the end of the conquest of the nations, 40 years from Armageddon, 30 years for Catholic Europe to be conquered, they say, well, that 30 years is the one hour with the beast. Personally, I, I favour something slightly different. The one hour, the term one hour means, I think, more likely a time, a season, a predicted moment. Like Jesus said, my hour is not yet come. It's a time that it, people have been waiting for. God had been waiting for this hour to come and they had one hour where they actually have a short space where they join with the papacy to oppose Christ. And when you go through that use of the hour, right through chapter 17 and 18, you see that it has to do in one hour, chapter 18, verse 5, um, 18, verse 8. Uh, the plagues come in one day. It doesn't take 30 years, it comes in one day. And again, you can make 30 years into, out of one day if you want to. But just think about that one hour. I think it more is about one season that they actually joined with the papacy in this battle against Christ. Okay, well, let's just summarise, brethren and sisters, what we've seen. We have a great privilege, don't we, in the insight into the future that we're given in the apocalypse. Don't ever be confused by the postmodern idea of toleration of other people's beliefs, of accepting equally valid truths of all good Christians being saved of not being judgmental of wrong doctrine because God doesn't see things like that at all. God has a very clear picture of what is right and wrong when it comes to religion. Remember the sacrifices of our brethren who were the brethren in Christ who resolutely stood against the false church and lost their lives for it and I believe they will lead the vengeance in the armies of Christ in destroying that system and pray for the day that we might be with him as his army when he goes forth to execute the judgments written. Let's just finish in verse 14. Those that are with him, they're called and we are called. We've received the calling of the truth. We are chosen, not because of any good in ourselves, but God has seen fit to, to choose us to be in his kingdom. And by his grace, we are saved. He's chosen us. God's done both those first two things, brethren and sisters. Our challenge is the third one. Will we be faithful? Will we be with the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in person in that day? We can be, brethren and sisters, we can be faithful if we endure to the end and we hear what the Spirit saith to the Ecclesiastes.